Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 218. Jesus H. Christ. <laughs> oh, man, and this is part eight. And, uh, oh, man, we, we have some things to talk about. But before we talk about the things that we're going to talk about, um, I have been doing this tour, the Holy Shift Tour, since January, and there's one show to go. Shout out, by the way, to everybody in Denver who came out to the Paramount Theater last uh, weekend. And uh, the last show is here in Los Angeles at the theater at the Ace Hotel. And the Ace Hotel, I mean, this venue is its a massive, iconic venue and when it was first suggested to finish the tour there i was like whoa that's like serious that's like i had like a oh my word um but we're actually doing it and i would love to have you there so um all those tickets information details etc um are at my site for the last holy shift tour show with pete rollins opening and uh all you los angeles people who are coming and people who are flying in from other places i am so excited. It's actually also, there's a weird sadness because I've been carrying this thing around um, all year. And then you do it the last time and you set it down. You know what I mean? So uh, yeah, it's got like all these uh, emotions attached to it. And then, oh, secondly, um, I'm sure you know this, but there's all this long form content on my site as well. There's a three hour audio called Launching Rockets, which is about uh, being a parent there's a seven hour and 45 minutes on the art of communicating, which is really about the creative process. Um, that's all my best, my best content on how to uh, shape ideas and form them. And then there's, uh, so far there's six hours called Blood, Guts, and Fire, which is the first two parts of my commentary on the book of Leviticus. Obviously, part three is coming soon, all that sort of stuff. So um, in case you didn't know that, all of that is at the site, and um, my first novel, um, we did a run of hardcover copies of my first novel, which is called Millones Cajones, copies of that are at my site as well. So we got all that taken care of, we're making lots of things, and it's so much fun, and honestly, uh, hitting record on this recorder thing here to make another episode of the Robcast, oh my word, it's just the best. Sun is shining, the dog is asleep at my feet, for now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my word. And now we're going to do part eight of Jesus H. Christ, the man, the mystery, the middle initial. Uh, how's that for subtitles? And we'll get to the title of part eight here in a minute. But I want to, uh, and what I've been doing throughout these episodes on Jesus H. Christ is oftentimes just reading you what are very familiar passages um, things Jesus said and did, and then taking you in to what may be happening just below the surface. So this episode, um, we're going to be in this passage uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he said, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you. Which, by the way, is the move from conventional wisdom to post-conventional wisdom. It's the move from conventional wisdom to alternative wisdom. There is... We know how everybody sees it, and then what he's consistently doing is inviting you to move past 
the wisdom of the group to post-conventional wisdom. So, conventional wisdom, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Now, because there's, man, where do we even start? Here's the thing about loving your enemies. If you love your enemy, if you wish them the best, if you send your generous energies their way, if you direct your kindness towards them, if you desire your enemy's well-being, then how could that person ever continue to be your enemy? Now, this person who you call your enemy, they, they may be toxic or destructive. Some people are. They may not be somebody that you can have contact with. You might have to have strong boundaries with them. This might be somebody who you have to keep at a distance. That's all totally normal. But if things tilt within you towards them, whether they even know it or not, if you decide to send good their way, whether it's simply your thoughts, your intentions, prayers, if you decide to send good their way, even if it's just a slight turn of your heart, even if it's an action that is imperceptible to an outside observer, even if it's as simple as you deciding to cease referring to them negatively as your enemy, if you do any of that, then how is that person still your enemy? The action dissolves the category. Now, to get at this truth, let's take apart the naming system here that makes someone your enemy and therefore by default makes you not the enemy. First, and this is a side note, as obvious as it is, when you name someone, when we name someone our enemy, it lets us off the hook. As long as I am clinging to their emptiness, en eneminess, as long as I am clinging to their eneminess, I don't have to talk about my participation in this dynamic that has us on opposite sides from each other. The energy I spend naming them as the enemy is energy I could spend doing the work of naming and working on my shadow, all that I've hidden and repressed and submerged that lurks within me. Because if I actually spent my energies on that, then I could be truly liberated. So when we love our enemy and we wish the best upon them, uh, the very category of enemy is being threatened, but there's also the chance in loving our enemy that we're going to find ourselves being set free. The thing about an enemy is whenever you find yourself especially cranked up about somebody, ask yourself why. What is present in me that this person has the unique ability to bring out? Why am I so reactive to them? Why do they make me so angry? How come they are able to set me off so easily in ways others aren't? What is it about this person that strikes such a dissonant chord within me? What are they here to show me is present within me? Our enemies have so much to teach us and show us. But that... but. We're just, that was just a tangent, but we're just getting started. We're taking apart these categories because when they're the enemy, when I'm right and they're wrong, when I'm on the proper side here, when they're out of line, when you start with these categories, me and my enemy, but if you love them and pray for them, if you do this, you end up leaving that category, those categories behind. It can't hold up. You have, in loving your enemy, 
transcended this way of understanding who they are and who you are. So loving your enemy actually has a momentum built into it. It takes you somewhere. Now, a bit more about this. If they're the enemy, then I am by fault, default not the enemy. The enemy is someone else. And what that understanding, what that framework does is it props me up. I am not the enemy here. They are. Labeling them that makes me not that. And that feels good. Are you with me on that? If I have an enemy, then I'm not the enemy. And oh, thank God I'm not the enemy. In that scoreboard deep in our heart, when we have an enemy, then we get a little point for not being the enemy. By the way, side note, this is why gossip is so incredibly enjoyable, right? Often just below the surface of gossip is the pointing out of what someone else did, how they stumbled, how they failed, their shortcomings, their dumb choices, how they lost it. Yeah, and that can do wonders for our own sense of self. Knocking them down just a half click by default elevates us just a half click. Watching them stumble a step puts us a step ahead. So having an enemy is fantastic for the broken self because it feels good to be better. But that feeling comes from keeping these categories of enemy and not enemy intact. I'm here, they're there. We have to hold on to these categories. We have to cling to these categories. We have to grasp these frameworks. We have to remain attached to them being our enemy to get that intoxicating feeling of superiority, worth, exceptionalism, and betterness. Is that a word, by the way, betterness? <laughs> when in doubt, make up a word and then go for it. Here's the thing. Attachments, graspings, clinging, those all require a particular kind of energy. And attachments and grasping and clinging means that you are not free. You are holding on to this idea that they're the enemy and you're not, and you're not free. So when Jesus H. Christ teaches us to love our enemies, he's inviting us to be free from those attachments. He comes to liberate us from everything we're grasping and clinging to. You don't have to find your worth in being better, in them being worse. You don't have to find validation in not being the enemy. You're already at the party. You've been found. All the points we thought we were racking up by being good, better, by being the properly behaved person in this situation, all the points we give ourselves for not being the enemy aren't earning us anything. So the counterintuitive, alternative, post-conventional wisdom Jesus brings us is that your enemy has come to set you free because if you can acknowledge their eneminess, if you can locate that clinging and grasping within yourself, if you can locate it, then you can uncling to it. You can let it go. I don't need to play that game anymore. And in doing so, you will be liberated. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, you see why this is good news. Now, 
we're almost to the intro. We are just getting started because what we see again and again is that Jesus H. Christ simply doesn't have these sorts of attachments. Like in, in the first century Jewish world of Jesus, Jewish men didn't talk to Samaritan women because of years of bad blood between their two tribes, let alone the dynamics between men and women. And yet Jesus talks to a Samaritan woman, and then she reminds him that her people worship on one mountain and his people claim a different mountain as the right mountain. And essentially, they've been battling over which one is right, literally clinging to geography for this sense of validation and worth. And he's like, ah, the time is coming when neither mountain will be the center of things. He's essentially inviting her, you don't have to cling to all this. You don't have to grasp at these desperate attempts to be just a little better. Or first century Jewish people living in the Galilee region despised tax collectors. These are the worst of the worst. And yet when Jesus sees this man named Zacchaeus, he wants to have dinner with him. Now, this is... Uh, easy to cliche, like, hey, Jesus has dinner with all the dangerous people. Now, but it's much more profound. It's about the attachments we form to who we are and to who other people are and the ways in which this buoys our sense of self. And when Jesus' disciples find a man casting out demons in his name and they say, you know, Rabbi, we tried to stop him because he isn't one of us. Jesus says, don't stop him. If anyone isn't against us, then they're for us. They literally are like, he wasn't one of us, so we tried to shut him down. Yeah, yeah, clinging to we're in, he's out, we're on your team. He's not even wearing the proper jersey. Or when Jesus is dying on the cross and there's a thief, the actual word is an insurgent. There's an insurgent next to him who wants to be remembered. Jesus doesn't even give the man's guilt a second look. He just assures them that everything will be okay. Yeah, yeah. It's like... There were dominant narratives about everybody in Jesus' world. Who's in, who's out, who's clean, who's unclean, who's the problem, who's the answer to the problem, who worships on the right mountain, who doesn't. Everybody around him is clinging and grasping to particular stories about who they are and who everybody else is. Who's the enemy, who's not, us and them, who's in the right, who's in the wrong, who's actually on God's good side, who isn't, and Jesus simply has no thems. (laughs) I love that sentence. Jesus H. Christ has no thems. Should that be the title? Is thems even a word? I have no thems. Boy, that's a mantra right there. That's the goal. That's the goal, is to move to the place where you have no thems. Think of how much destruction has been wreaked in human history, how much has been wrecked, how much has been destroyed, because somebody kept clinging to that sense of us and them. I'm in the right here, they're the enemy. And how many of these attachments are rooted in a desperate desire to feel good enough, worthy enough, to feel like we've earned something, like we qualify, like we deserve to be at the party. The gospel is the radical grace announcement that that was never how it worked. God has thrown out the scorecard. That was never the game the divine was playing. So when we read Jesus says, hey, love your enemy, there's so much more going on here. He's inviting us to transcend 
these categories, this way of even framing who we are and who others are. By the way, I should do here, we should do a tangent here about identity. There are layers, or maybe you could say depths, or maybe you could say levels to our identity as humans, to how we understand who we are, to how we differentiate ourselves. So there are the most basic surface material layers of each self. Uh, I'm six foot three. I was born in 1970. I'm a quarter Danish. Um, I write with my left hand. I eat with my left hand. I kick with my right foot and I throw with my right hand. (laughs) I'm a male. I was born at Sparrow Hospital, right? There are just these surface material ways. Uh, You went to the same school with those people, so you have a connection there. Uh, You like the same teams. You agree that LeBron James is the best basketball player ever. You love watching the Patriots, despite what your son says, right? So there are these ways uh, you like the same foods. You belong to this political party. You, there are these almost surface material layers of identity, most basic surface external identities. Then you have just a click. Now you can just move down just a click. Like if it's water, you can just go just below the surface. You have personality, temperament, how you see the world, what you desire, what you like, what you don't like. We have upbringing, environment, circumstance. We have ethnic backgrounds, gender, worldview, convictions, beliefs. We can go a bit deeper. We have psychological profiles, Enneagram types, astrological signs. Are you a maven or a connector? Uh, You can swim a little down. See, there are these multi, you can just keep swimming deeper, below surface. Uh, And then we talk about having a soul connection with uh, somebody. Those moments of soul connection. When you look in someone's eyes, it's almost like you see yourself looking back at you. You are at that point way deeper than those surface material affinities. Yeah, there are these moments when we have a we talk about like that man that person there's just a soul sister, a soul brother. It's like these two selves, these two souls resonate on some frequency way deeper than just those surface material affinities. You become acutely aware of your connection. Oftentimes those soul connections transcend age. They can transcend all sorts of different kinds of background. Uh, It's like you see yourself in them. You see the oneness between you. It's almost like uh, certain connections, you become a witness to the thing that's happening. Yeah, there's the Christ in me and the Christ in you and all of us in God. Yeah, those... Yeah, those are all taking place at far deeper levels. Now, obviously, the majority of our human interactions take place on that surface earlier level, although we're actually constantly moving up and down across all these different depths. By the way, a side note on that side note, this is why it can be so hard to forgive someone. If somebody wrongs you, they can easily become the thing they did to you. There are people who wronged me who, if you were to say their name, uh, there were years there when all I could conjure up in my mind is what they did to me. It's like they become the thing they did. Uh, They just simply become, the sum total of their being is the action they did to hurt you. Um, It's almost like you get stuck at a much more surface action level of depth of that person. So actually what, what really helped me a number of years ago begin 
as I began to see that you have to forgive everybody for everything, that forgiveness is the center. It's the engine of, in some ways of the whole thing. Uh, and obviously forgiveness is different than condoning or approving or, or, or sidestepping or avoiding what they did. But central to forgiving is reclaiming the fact that this person is a human being, that they have levels of depth to their being beyond simply what they did. It's like you have to move deeper and reclaim something of their humanity, a number of levels beyond simply surface material what they did. I remember one person who, I, I mean, I probably lost sleep for six months, just filled with rage. I would lay in bed at night just filled with rage about this person. Um, but I remember one day having this thought like, oh, he's actually a human being. <laughs> I mean, literally, it was like that <coughs> revelatory. Oh, he's actually a human being. Um, and, and that's when the forget, there's a soul somewhere in there. Yeah. And that's often how you get unstuck. But now, uh, man, we could do episodes on all that, couldn't we? But anyway, let's, uh, let's go back uh, to the love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Because once again, we're just getting started. We're just getting warmed up here. We're almost through the intro. Because when Jesus says, be, says love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, he then says, for your Father in heaven causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. Okay, two notes. First, it's almost as if he says, whatever your categories of people, if you're still clinging to some people are evil and some people are good, some are righteous, some are unrighteous, whatever your categories are of people, God doesn't have those. God causes the sun uh, to rise on everybody. God sends rain on everybody. Second note, the sun and, and rain are good here. So this is an agricultural society where people lived close to the land. You need sun and rain uh, you need the sun to shine just the right amount and the rain to fall just the right amount for your crops to grow so that you can eat, so that you can take part in the most basic gifts of the earth. So Jesus says, you love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute you. By the way, that's a parallelism, very uh, common in Jewish poetry where you say something and then you say the same thing in the second line, but slightly differently to give it sort of, it's like the two lines play off each other, a bit like music, like tones, give it like, give it like a fullness and a depth and a sort of poetic resonance. Love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. And, and essentially he says, um, because that's what God does. Ultimate reality pours out the good on everybody, regardless of the categories that you have placed them in. Essentially, Jesus says, be like the divine who doesn't discriminate. Or to put it another way, it's as if he says, be like the divine who doesn't have those attachments. The divine. God doesn't need to prop the divine self up with a sense of betterness by not being the enemy because the divine doesn't have those categories. Divine goodness flows irregardless because the divine is free. There's no clinging. There's no grasping because there's no need to be better, because there's no need to prop up, and there's no need for identity because the divine is the whole thing. The divine is identified with the whole thing. You have no need 
to fit into the thing when you are the thing. Come on. Oh, my word. Stop washing the dishes. Pull over by the side of the road. Get off that treadmill. And let's just spend a moment with that. You have no need, compulsion, drive to grasp and cling and form attachments so that you can belong and fit into the thing when you are the thing, right? We cling and we grasp. We hold on to these categories of being better, they're my enemy, because we're terrified we won't belong, we won't be loved, we won't be liked, we'll be all alone and isolated. But the divine can't be isolated, because the divine is over all and through all and in all. That's a line from the New Testament. Remember when you were younger and uh, you were so identified with the music that you listened to? Remember when you were like 14, you are like, oh man, Der- Derek is cool. Trisha is awesome. She listens to the best music. Remember when you were like identified? Uh, when I was 13, um, Izod Lacoste had just come on the scene. And if you had an alligator on your shirt, oh my, that, that guy is not messing around. She has got game. Every day this week, she wore a different alligator, right? So there were these and adolescence, but you, cl- well, like this is just adolescence. Come on clinging to these surface identities. What kind of music do you listen to? Remember when you had your first car and your friend got in the car and started going through your CDs? Does that date me or what? Remember, you had to have cool. It wasn't just that you had cool CDs. Oh, dude, I like this. Excellent. It wasn't just that you had Radiohead. Your friend couldn't be like, wait, Celine Dion? What? You know what I mean? Your your friend was like, oh, cool. The first Talking Heads. Wait, you have Bon Jovi in here, right? Remember how it wasn't just what you identified with, it was what you didn't identified with. But then remember when you got older and you moved beyond this and you were like, I love Frank Sinatra, right? And your kids were like, who is this? And you were like, Mahila Jackson, sit down and get an education, son, right? So what happened is you used to identify to the identify with and cling to and grasp these surface marks of identity. But then you moved beyond those identity markers. It's like you just don't need them to define you like they used to. Well, now imagine if you kept going. Imagine if you kept transcending and including. Imagine if you kept going to where you weren't clinging to any of it. You have no problem with music. You have no problem with being that tall or of that particular background, or you were born there. You just own all of it. It's like you have swum. You just swum, swam. You keep swimming down and down and down, acknowledging all the layers of what it means to be a self. But Jesus H. Christ has this great line in the Gospels. He says, I'm in you, and you're in me, and we're in the Father. This is the Christ consciousness in which there is no isolation or separation. There is no clinging to identity out of fear that you would be isolated because you've come to see that you already belong. There is no us and them here. There is no me over here and my enemy over there because you've come to see that it's all one. This uh, legendary Jewish 
prayer, which has been recited for literally thousands of years, the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, Lord your God, the Lord is one. It's the Hebrew word echad, E-C-H-A-D, echad. Yeah, ultimate reality is one. It's a seamless, integrated unity. All is one underneath it all. And when everything already belongs, then there's nothing to attach to. Or as as some have said, how can anything be against itself? So all of these categories we cook up to put us over here and them over there, in the end, their divisions, their differences, their separations sitting on top of a great unity. So at earlier levels of understanding, we divide ourselves up based on all sorts of number of different factors. You're part of this, they're part of this, they have this flag, they have this belief. But the invitation in loving your enemy is to see and understand at a much deeper level. This is why people of all backgrounds, all across ages, from all different traditions have spoken of the Christ consciousness is you are embracing who you are at the most surface levels while simultaneously acknowledging that all those divisions and categories and labels are only true at surface levels because you dive down deep enough into the water and the divine is over all and through all and in all. This is why we love being in nature, dancing, sex, cheering for our kids at their games, eating a great meal with friends. That's why we love those moments when we're just in it. We're one with it. There's no standing at a distance. There's no detachment, isolation. We're not critically analyzing it. We're just caught up in it. We're merged with it. We come to see that you're a part of it, and all that division is at some profound level an illusion because ultimate depth is united. Jesus H. Christ invites us to move beyond enemy and not enemy, us and them, moving beyond worthy or unworthy, moving beyond good enough versus not good enough, me over here, them over there, to see how it truly is all of us, the Christ in me, the Christ in you, all of us in God. Come on, raise your glasses. So good. Now, that said, Let's talk about awkward, mean, annoying people, right? Let's let's uh, let's work through a very practic- a few very practical examples here. You begin to love your enemy. You move deeper into the Christ consciousness that sees these borders, these separations, these categories as of the attachments that they are. They're unnecessary anymore. What happens then when you have that person who comes at you, right? They come at you hard. They are out for blood. Every time you see them, they're hiding knives in their words. Yeah, trying to gain an edge, trying to feel a little better. They are grasping to those categories of they are over there and you are over here. They see you as the enemy. Yeah, perhaps part of it is to turn the dialogue around in your head, right? You see them coming. Oh, man, you think we're separated. You think you're over there. Yeah. You think there's something at stake here, right? You think you're earning points. You're not. You think there's lack. 
And if I get something good, then obviously it must be that you've had something taken away from you, so you got to fight for it. Yeah, so you just decide, I will not be rattled by this because I'm not playing that game. The next time somebody comes at you, try repeating this mantra, the Christ in me, the Christ in this person, all of us in God, and see what happens. Dissolve the categories yourself and see how it completely transforms the encounter. Because oppositional thinking has ruled the day. Oh my word, here we go. They're going to disagree with me. They're going to shift it within you. How can I cause the sun to shine and the rain to fall on them? What good can I send? How can I blast to pieces these categories that everybody here is clinging to? There's this great line in the New Testament where the Apostle Paul says that the dividing wall of hostility has been removed. Oh, it's so fantastic. Just try letting the dividing wall of hostility dissolve within you. When you find yourself with somebody who sees the world very differently, just start asking questions. Because all politics, all theology, most philosophy actually flows from personal narrative. This person holds those views. They see the world that way because of the experiences they've had. So oftentimes what happens is we present this like, well, I just thought about it rationally. I just worked my way through the data. But then you start asking them questions about their story, and you're like, oh, I can totally see why they had leaned. Because there's other data. They could have, there's other evidence. They could have taken, they could have created a very different story from the bits and pieces. And they're claiming that they sort of have this isolated, you know what, I'm just going with the truth here. Yeah, well, it's interesting because the truth is deeply shaped by our stories. Everything ultimately is personal. Yeah. So when this person has, they're shaking their fist, they're all hot and sweaty about some argument, Instead of, oh, well, I guess I'm on this side, they're on that side, seriously, try this. Try flipping it around. Christ in me, Christ in you, we're all in God. So tell me more about that. How'd you arrive at that? Did you always used to think this way? Tell me how you lined up the evidence that way. Tell me why you picked those facts over those facts. And suddenly the boundaries are dissolving, and now you may be even learning something, let alone what might be happening to them. Now, let's take this from the personal and let's expand it out and beyond. Uh, well, let's talk about Iran. <laughs> you did not see that coming. 218 episodes of the Robcast and you did not see that coming. Let's talk about Iran. Because as I'm sure you know, in 1951, Iran had a new uh, leader, Mosaddegh. And, and the people wanted Mosaddegh to be their leader. But at that time, Iranian oil was essentially controlled by the British Petroleum Company, also known as BP. And Mosaddegh had a problem with this. Essentially, why does Britain and England get all the profits from the oil that comes out of the land of Iran? And so Mosaddegh made a move to essentially nationalize Iranian oil so that Iranians would control the oil that comes out of their own soil. The Brits and the Americans didn't want this. So and I'm sure you know all this. I'm sure I'm just reviewing basic history. But do you know that in 1953, the America and CIA and the British organized a coup to have 
the Iranian leader removed and somebody put in place who was would be willing to be uh, essentially a puppet for American and British interests in the region. How would you feel if Americans overwhelmingly were for a particular president and then another country said, we want the money from the resources in your land and your president won't let us have the money from your resources. And so they quietly, well, not even quietly, had our president removed and somebody put in power that they could control. You would be furious, scandalized, outraged. Right. Now, I bring this up, and this is all widely known. This is very straightforward. And I realize I simplified some of uh, the story, and yet, oddly enough, uh, I didn't. It, it is that horrific. To this day, what is the country that America is constantly referring to as the enemy? Iran. Well, America. We. The guilt here. Do you see why these categories of enemy, not enemy, they don't work? And continuing to insist that somebody is the enemy can allow even a giant political structure to avoid the honest truth about their own conduct. You would have long-standing bitterness against the United States of America if you had lived through what Iranians lived through at the hands of American and British covert activity. Yes, yes, of course. Or think about how the U.S. in many ways has led the charge globally for who can have nuclear bombs and who can't. They can have them, they can't. We need to make sure that country doesn't have them. Uh, it's okay that we have enough to blow up the word world multiple, multiple times. Uh, quick question here. Has any country in human history ever actually dropped a nuclear bomb? The answer is yes. Which country was that? The U.S. Yeah. And we dropped two. Yeah. So you can see why this idea of clinging to we're good, they're the enemy, we're the ones in the right, they're the ones who are out of line, these categories... If you stay stuck in those categories, if you keep the shadow and the facts and the darkness submerged, it comes back around in so many destructive ways, stuck in earlier stages of worldview and consciousness. And Jesus invites us to move past these categories. There's one planet we are all citizens of it, as far as we know. Yeah, we are in this together. And these different, while there are legitimate defense differences, well, obviously, there are certain positions, abuses of power, uh, perspectives on the environment, policies against those who don't have the resources to make their way well. Obviously, we resist these. Obviously, we march. Obviously, we get activated. Obviously, we get out and do our part, acknowledging underneath it all a oneness to the whole thing. Yeah, Jesus H. Christ comes to liberate us from these stifling categories that hold us back from our mutual thriving. Or, uh, while we're at it, how many of you 
for years there's been a sense that the political right is narrow and brittle and shrill and stifling. But how many of you recently have felt like the political left was just as narrow and stifling and brittle? But also, the problem with the political left is it has that underbelly of arrogance that it's not the right. It's like both sides clinging to we're the right and those liberals over there, we're the left and those conservatives over there, clinging to these categories, poking each other in the eyes without any progress being made. Jesus H. Christ comes to liberate us from consciousness that actually makes things worse. He comes to elevate our understanding of what it means to be human. He comes to reignite a sense of curiosity about each other. Who is this person? Why do they see things this way? How will we ever come together if I don't have any idea why they see it that way? If you move towards whoever has decided, maybe it's you, this is that this is your enemy, if you move towards them in goodness, with sunshine and rain, who knows? If you tilt the categories, even within yourself, who knows how much that will change things? Yeah, yeah, and this can affect all. This can affect all areas of life. Uh, I've noticed on this tour that I've been doing this year. My friends afterwards will be like, what in the, what was that? What is happening in you? What in the world? And uh, I, I will often say, I came up in a world where you do public, like the, the sermon, the show is about, you give people this thing. You study really hard and you prepare something and then you give it to people and then they receive it and maybe hopefully do something with it. But over the past, I don't know, 10 years, uh, things began to shift. And, and, uh, and then all the subsequent questions come, you know, how did it go? Did it go well? Did people like it? Um, what did people say about it? And uh, that all began to shift as I began to see uh, a deep intrinsic oneness to the whole thing. Yeah, and my favorite thing has always been the live event, getting to speak to a room full of people. But you know what began to shift as I began to think, I began to see it in a whole new way. Oh, we're all in this and we're all gonna have an experience together. I'm witnessing to it just like you. Yeah, yeah, I may have a microphone, so I may have a different role than everybody else, but I'm witnessing to it. I can't wait to have the experience just like you. Yeah, so when I'm telling that thing and I'm laughing, I'm laughing because I think it's funny, and you are welcome to join me. <laughs> Not trying to make anybody laugh, good Lord. No way. Having an experience, and you're welcome. Any of you who stand in front of a group of people who have to present something, you perform at some level, you shift this from me and them. Will they like it? Will they approve of me? Will they legitimize me? Will they validate me? Will I feel good enough based on how they respond? You just move beyond those categories. You move, I have this thing I'm gonna do. I'm gonna throw myself into it. Try this, try this as a mantra. 
I'm not wondering how it's going to go. I have these beloved friends who were over last week or in a band, and we were talking. They were talking about you know nerves before a show, and I was saying, oh no, before the show, you decide how it's going to go. I'm going to go out there and give it everything I have. I'm going to have the time of my life. I don't know how many more times I get to do this. Nothing's guaranteed, but I do have this moment, and I'm going to throw myself into it. And I was talking to the musician friends of mine. You decide up front how it's going to go. You're going to go out and play these songs with everything you have. You're going to have the time of your life. People are free to join you. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe you do get a heckler. Maybe somebody does tune out. Maybe you see somebody on their cell phone. Yeah, they missed out. They missed out. Not in an arrogant sort of like, I'm awesome, but in a very humble We had an experience. Yeah, because see what you've done is you've transcended these standard old categories of us and them. I'm doing this. You're over there doing that. You're watching to see if it's any good. I'll decide if I feel good or not based on whether you clap or not. We've left that behind. We have left that behind. You'll also notice as the Christ conscious as the Jesus H. Christ consciousness begins to take over, as you begin to see the world through this lens, I'm in the Christ, you're in the Christ, we're all in God, you and me, I and you, Uh, what you'll begin to notice is you cling and grasp far less to your titles, to your accomplishments, to the things that you've achieved, to the sign on the door outside your office, to the grades that your kids get being a marker of whether you're a good mom or dad. It just doesn't have the same rush that it used to. Because in the past, clinging to those identity markers, clinging, grasping at anything that will prop up that broken self, clinging and grasping and attaching to anything that will numb the pain for a moment, give me a little feeling of, yeah, 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 I belong, I deserve, I'm okay, I'm okay. I'm okay here. Seriously, I'm okay here. And then you stumble into the party and realize you never des- deserving was never the game God was playing. You're playing a different game. So it doesn't have the same rush that it used to because as those c- graspings, as those clingings, as those attachments fade away, there's just you. You've been there the whole time. The whole thing at its deepest levels is united. It's one. Hear, O Israel, Lord your God, the Lord is one. Deepest reality is a seamless, integrated reality. And all those divisions we cooked up to divide us, to make us feel better about ourselves, yeah, yeah, that's just what they are. And so you can can celebrate. You can celebrate all those differences. You can acknowledge them, but you don't have to cling to them. Once again, spirit, not form. Yeah, you will notice this. Jesus H. Christ takes you farther and farther into soul, into the place where you're free from needing those identity markers. You're no longer going, well, I have a bunch of cool CDs. (laughs) Yeah, you just don't need to play those games anymore. Yeah, yeah. So Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, there was a guy who I really, really despised. I'm telling you, I really despised this guy. So I decided, man, this is like seriously 15 years ago. I decided that when I would see him, I would just walk up to him and give him like a huge hug. 
You know what I mean? Like a college football hug. Like a, we just won a Grammy hug. You know what I'm saying? Like just came back from a long journey hug. I would just walk up to this guy wherever. I'd see him in public because I lived in a small town. I would see him and I would just walk up to him and just give him a giant hug. And you could tell the guy was like, what the? I'm telling you what it did energetically is it broke the hold that those categories had over me of I'm right and that guy is just a prick. You know what I mean? <laughs> you just It just broke those. The category, when you move, when you move towards what it energetically does is it dissolves those categories. Sometimes it takes a while, but it dissolves those categories. They, they can't stand up. They can't handle it. And I'm telling you, it's freedom, liberation, fresh air. It, it, you, you discover all of the ways that you were clinging to the labels and categories you'd attach to that other person. Clinging's exhausting. Clinging's exhausting. Your relatives, your coworkers, your neighbors, uh, the people that you've decided are a problem, a challenge, a difficulty, this kid who's just driving you mental. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, all that, all that, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. So uh, Jesus H. Christ, he has no thems. He has no attachments. He isn't clinging. He isn't grasping. He's free, and he invites us into that freedom. And it's real. It's real. You don't have to perform. You don't have to achieve. You can just throw yourself into it with joy. You don't have to make them laugh. You can laugh and they're free to join you or not. Yeah. Oh, see what I mean about this stuff? It takes you someplace. Whew. Yeah, it takes, does something to you. So my friends, Jesus Christ, he has no thems. Jesus H. Christ, excuse me. Oh, my word. Jesus H. Christ, he has no thems. <laughs> Try this. Try this. The next time, man, your enemy, the next time, just try that mantra, I have no thems. Uh, and, and at first you're like, that's ridiculous. I have tons of thems. Just keep trying, just, man, just keep repeating it. That's the power of a mantra. Just keep repeating it and see if it does something. See if it tilts. See if it tilts things. Oh, my word, here they come. I know what they're going to do. They're going to lay into me. They're going to do all those things. They're going to hide knives in their words and stop and just say, I have no thems. The whole thing is a happening. I'm just going to observe. I'm not against them. We're on the same side. Just watch how the tilt in your heart transforms the experience. Yes, Jesus H. Christ, my friends, he has no thems. And may you neither. Is that grammatically correct? And may you have no thems either. That's even more awkward. Yeah, I have no thems. That's the goal. And may grace and peace be with you.